When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We should be using that same money that we are raising on the radio and that we are raising at other fundraisers to pay for podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Jeff Umbro. I am the host of Podcast Perspectives, brought to you by The Podglomerate. We are an agency that produces, distributes, and monetizes podcasts. And this podcast is all about bringing you conversations with leaders in the podcast space, as well as panel discussions surrounding news stories of the day. Today on the show, we have Rebecca Lavoie. Rebecca is the director of on-demand audio at New Hampshire Public Radio, where she is a 10-year veteran. I'm biased during this interview. I live in New Hampshire. It is my local public radio station. I am very proud of the work that they do, including the production very recently of The 13th Step in the second season of Bear Brook. NHPR punches way above their weight, driving millions of downloads to these shows, driving real conversation and journalism around the issues that they cover, and leading the way in the podcast industry for how a nonprofit or public radio station can publish real journalism that moves the needle both financially and meaningfully with the quality of what they're putting out in the world. Rebecca was recently interviewed in an article for Current by writer Jenna Spinelli. And one of the things that Rebecca mentions in the article is that public radio stations currently have an opportunity to publish really high quality narrative journalism in the midst of all of the pullback and layoffs that we're seeing across the rest of the industry. We spend a lot of time talking about the different revenue streams from commercial and public radio stations on the show today. And we really dive into some of the themes that were talked about in the article. As a disclaimer, Poglomerate works with New Hampshire Public Radio on audience development initiatives across several of their shows. So we have an existing relationship with the station and with Rebecca. Let's get to the show. Hey, Rebecca, welcome to Podcast Perspectives. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here and it's going great. I want to just start by hopefully clearing up something that is, I think, a little bit mysterious to a lot of potential listeners and, and folks out in the world. What is the public radio ecosystem and like, how does it operate? Okay, so New Hampshire Public Radio and the public radio station that you listen to is not NPR. That's probably the most like, commonly misunderstood thing. People think I work at NPR. People think that like, every podcast or every program they hear on public radio is NPR. It's not. NPR essentially... It's not like a mothership, like we don't report to them. It's They're more like our biggest, for lack of a better word, vendor. So they basically make a bunch of stuff that we license or buy from them to air on our local network. But we also license and buy stuff from American public media, like Marketplace, which also airs on our local network. And we also make stuff ourselves, like from our local newsroom. And stations have local talk shows that they air. So public radio stations are local radio stations 
that can brand themselves as NPR stations because they carry NPR content. NPR is usually the flagship content, like Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Weekend Edition, and so forth. That's sort of the anchor content that's primary to the public radio brand. But your member station is not NPR. That's a thing to know. I'm also under the impression that there's university stations and local stations. Yes. And they they both kind of operate in this a similar way, but they're a little bit different in, in the funding model and everything. They're actually very different. So there's actually three kinds of stations. There's university stations. There's dual licensees, which is both uh, stations that are both television and radio. So Vermont Public, which used to be Vermont Public Radio, is now a dual licensee. It's Vermont Public Television and what was formerly VPR. But university licensees like WBUR, in Boston as university licensee. And they have some oversight by that college or university. So some of their funding comes through there. That's been in the news a little bit lately because there have been stations where there's been journalism conflicts related to the college or university, which I'd recommend people look up because it's actually kind of an interesting story. There's more constraints there in terms of the kinds of innovations and uh, sort of rapidity of development and movement and fundraising and stuff that stations like that can do because they are more dependent on the university ecosystem and they're not independent organizations. But a lot of stations like mine, they're independent nonprofits. So we sort of have the ability to move, grow, innovate, make stuff within, of course, the nonprofit world confines. And I want to come back to this because there's been some interesting things happening over the last few years when it comes to like the mothership of NPR and how they're trying to integrate with a lot of the member stations and that kind of thing. But we skipped over a really important piece that was intentional, everybody. But Rebecca, who are you? What is your role at NHPR? And like, what do you do every day? Right. So right now at NHPR, I run the podcast team. So I'm technically the director of on-demand audio. So I oversee all the podcasts that we make outside in Civics 101 in terms of like the editorial. Those are our regularly published podcasts. And then all the podcasts that are connected to the newsroom journalism, like the document team, which makes Bear Brook the 13th step. I work with them closely on strategy, the podcast product itself. So I do work with them on editorial. I'm in late stage edits and sort of help them shape the show. But I also work with them kind of on the business, marketing, strategy, launch side. So I basically oversee everything at NHPR that has to do with on-demand audio in terms of editorial, the business footprint, monetization, kind of like the whole shebang. So I'm sort of the head of our sort of podcast company within our company. We we work together on a few different projects. And you know, NHPR is, by my measure and as a lot of other measures, I'm also a local to New Hampshire, so I'm biased, but one of the premier stations when it comes to being able to do this and do this well. And you have some very unique experience just in general and then through NHPR because you get to see this from the top down and the bottom up in terms of like actually producing the shows and coming up with the ideas, the conception, the production, the the whole nine yards. And then you also get to see like, how does this get made? How does it get funded? Like, how do we hire the people that do it? And then in addition to that, you also have a few other roles. So do you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I do have a whole podcasting life outside of NHPR. So for a while, I actually wasn't the head of the podcast unit. I actually worked in digital in the newsroom, but I worked very closely with our podcasts and you know helped make a lot of them while I was doing that. And so I've always been very much involved in our podcasting at NHPR. But on the outside of NHPR, I have a podcast called Crime Writers On, where we actually review like Siskel and Ebert style other 
podcasts. My husband and I have a little podcasting company. We make a couple of shows, that one and another one called These Are Their Stories, which is about law and order and SVU. And then I also host a podcast for Netflix where I interview directors of documentaries on the service. And so I, I sort of have this um, very solid foot in the commercial podcasting space that I, I have for about eight or nine years, which has really been a very interesting thing that I've been able to do both of these things at the same time because my leg in the commercial space has very much informed the decisions that I've made at NHPR in terms of growth, in terms of monetization, in terms of even just like what we make, how we make it, how to scale, how not to scale, and how to think of ourselves as being a player in the industry, which I think a lot of public radio stations haven't necessarily done. And it's been a, an interesting mix, I think, to the benefit of both sides of my career, frankly. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And we, I've known you for a few years and I've been able to kind of see it in action. And it, it's very cool and impressive to see that you're bringing in all of these different layers and levers from all over the industry. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I wanted to look at like the different business models of how a commercial podcast makes money. And then I want to shift a little bit to how like a nonprofit such as NHPR does that. So let's start with commercial. And I know there's a few different levels here. So like, feel free to talk through any, any of them. Sure. So it used to be just ads, right? So like when I started Crime Writers On, for instance, and we first signed up with Stitcher, which was mid-roll at that point, like in 2015, 16, basically the way podcasts made money was by the placement of ads that hosts read on shows. That was pretty much it back then. And so if you had a regularly published show or a serialized show, you'd hear an ad on that show. That ad was attached to money. It used to be baked in, meaning that it was actually audio that was attached to the program itself. And if you ever had to change it, you actually had to edit your audio file and re-upload it. It was a whole thing. So there was like, there's like level one of podcast advertising. That evolved over time into now most ads are actually dynamically inserted digital files so they can be switched out automatically. So that's one way that shows can monetize. Another way that commercial shows can monetize, which was stolen completely from public radio, very smartly was the membership model. Very common platform for this is Patreon, where creators have a show because podcast audiences are so engaged with creators, if creators are smart about it, they then will create paywall content often or some sort of bonuses, you know, stickers, uh, engagement opportunities like live events or the ability to show up for tapings or something like that. And a small percentage of their listeners will pay $5 or $10 a month to join their Patreon and then sort of directly monetize the show that way. So a lot of shows like my, my show, for instance, we sort of do both. We both have. And this is Crime Writers on. Yeah. So we, we, we sort of have a combination of both advertising and Patreon as sort of our like pie of monetization. There are some shows that primarily do Patreon and there are some podcasts that are only paywall shows, which is very interesting to me. And those shows, some of those shows make bank. Yeah. What's interesting to me is the shows that they put like the crappy version of their show out in the public sphere <laughs> and the good version of their show behind the Patreon firewall. Like that's how they have scaled it. They like designed it that way. Uh, in the last few years, of course, there's a whole new model where commercial podcast production companies in particular with serialized shows, you know, like stories that are like in chapters, like eight episodes, 10 episodes. They are now creating these stories and selling them as a package to a distributor like Wondery, Amazon. So they'll 
basically pitch the show, sell it out of the gate for a determined amount of money, $500,000. That's, a, that's a, just a, a sample. I mean, they're not always always going for that with the idea that that production company gets that money with the potential upside of an IP deal, ad money, other kinds of revenue on the back end of it. But that money that they're getting initially for the sale of the show also often goes to producing the show. So they'll sell the concept. They'll get that big hunk of money. That big hunk of money also goes toward the production. Maybe they'll make some money off of that initial sale. So there's like a bunch of things at play right now. And the sort of pot of gold, one of them that has unfortunately really driven a lot of what we're hearing in podcasting right now is that IP potential for the end of the rainbow for some of these serialized shows. And that unfortunately has driven a lot of what has happened in the industry in terms of sort of corporate takeovers, uh, consolidations, people getting into the industry who have no audio background, that kind of thing, because it has been seen as this big development space for stories, for talk shows, for sort of celebrity monetization. And um, we now have this glut of just content that's just like not as high quality as those, you know, great pieces of journalism that kind of first brought us to the serialized podcast to begin with. Mark Andreessen wrote a thing years ago called like the the eight ways that media can make money. I'm sure I'm butchering that title. I think all of them apply to podcasting. And the idea is subscription, premium tiers, ad monetization, grant writing and funding from you know your community, live events, um, micro payments, which does exist in podcasting, but in a funny way. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that there's a lot of different ways to make money. Most publishers are making their money in in the same few ways. the The most popular and the most accessible is ad sales. If you have like a strong community, then it is like some kind of premium or crowdsourced model. And to Rebecca's point about, you know, selling like a package to produce for like a larger organization, that's generally reserved, not always, but generally reserved for like a more professionalized production company that has the connections, the resources and the talent to really like, you know, pull that off. There is one other weird way that I'm also fascinated by that I love to mention. There is this sort of growing niche of like a lot of them are B2B podcasts or like very specialty small audience podcasts where the size of the audience is less important than who it's for. And I've met people like this at conferences who are making a podcast that might be intended for like 100 listeners. But those 100 listeners are either willing to pay to listen to it or there is a specific advertiser who's willing to pay a huge premium to reach those 100 listeners. And I call I call that sort of like the micro niche podcasting. And it's sort of like a dream. Like I met this woman at Podcast Movement who's making this like surveying podcast with her husband, this like road surveying and mapping podcast. They literally have like 100 downloads and they have somebody paying $10,000 per ad spot yeah. on their show because like they're reaching those people. Yep. If you can find that, man, do that. It's it's bananas. <laughs> we we produced a show for a SaaS company and and one of their selling points was that they would do their thing and make you 1% better at doing that thing, which makes a massive difference for an organization with like 50,000 employees. 
so it, we produced two years of this podcast and their entire goal was like, we don't care what happens. We need to make one sale of this software. And that software cost $50,000 a month. But yes, there's a lot of different ways in which folks make money by podcasting commercially. But when it comes to a public radio station, they're nonprofits and they have like legal rules that are written down that they have to comply with. So we'll start with NHPR because that's, I presume, what you know best. But how does NHPR make money? Okay, so it's very interesting because we actually have FCC regulations that apply on the radio side that don't apply on the on-demand side. So, for instance, when you hear a public radio, we'll just call it an ad spot, like a company ad spot. It's actually called an underwriting spot, technically. What you can't hear and what you will never hear is a call to action. So you'll hear an ad, an underwriting spot for a law firm, and what you won't hear is... The Jeff Umbro Law Firm, the very best at writing, you know, wills and trusts since 1985. Call them now at, you know, 1-800-555-5555. You'll never hear that call to action. Call them now at the very best at, you know, that sort of sales pitch. That's called a call to action. Like, do this and you'll get this. You'll never hear that. That is against the rules in the public radio nonprofit underwriting space. So in the on-demand space, that is not true. We can operate like a commercial podcast. None of the FCC nonprofit public radio rules apply to podcasts produced by public radio stations. They just don't, which kind of gets me to something that like has kind of made me crazy about public radio podcasting for years. Can I talk about that? Yeah, please. So for years and years and years, and still to this day, public radio podcasts, including NPRs, do not sound like they are just podcasts like in the in the regular podcast space. For some reason, a lot of public radio stations and NPR have made the conscious decision to bring their public radio sensibility in terms of how they'll deliver, for instance, their advertising to the podcast space. So the best example of this is hosts reading ads. A lot of public radio outlets will not do that. They won't do it because they believe that it somehow taints the journalism or the integrity of the content if the host is reading an ad for HelloFresh. I think that is limiting and ridiculous. I have worked with ad agencies at NHPR. I've been in meetings with ad agencies sort of before I had this job at NHPR where I happen to know that we have left a lot of money on the table before the era where, and at this point now, our, I mean, our hosts don't care. Like, they're like, give me the Casper copy. Just give it to me. Give me the Indeed copy. It's fine. <laughs> our audience is smart enough to know that an Indeed ad is not journalism. Podcast audiences are trained for this. They've been listening to the radio forever. They've been listening to podcasts forever. This precious idea that somehow reading an ad negates the value of the other stuff you're talking about, it is bizarre to me. It's bizarre. And public radio is leaving money on the table by refusing to do it. And they have been for years. I, I think, though, at the core of this, the idea is that there are restrictions that are placed on public radio stations and their ad sales that are not placed on other commercial entities. That public radio stations have put on themselves. Yeah. That don't, they're not actually restricted. They are self-limiting. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to ad sales, how do public radio stations make money? 
All right. So this is where we have the huge advantage because we are not wholly reliant on ad sales to make our podcasts. Our podcasts are simply another platform on which we're doing journalism. We already do journalism on the radio. We already do journalism on our websites, in our newsletters. And we already have this incredibly robust funding model for all that stuff. We do fund drives. We get grant money. We have major donors. And we basically use that same pile to fund our podcasts. So at NHPR, we have made the very conscious decision, and I cannot speak for other stations because I know other stations, this is not the case. We have made the very conscious decision to not engage in this situation where we are saying like our podcasts have to be, quote, self-funding. I know a lot of places that are doing that, and I don't understand why. It is just another platform on which we are doing journalism. That's how we view it. And we are funding it the same way we fund all of our stuff. We've had specific luck in the podcast space with major donors because we found that major donors really are interested in investing in like long form journalism, in journalism that has like a broader reach. They see it as very innovative that we're in this on demand audio space. Civics 101 in particular really excites people outside and really excites people because it has an environmental bent to it. But our long form serial stories, Bear Brook, The 13th Step, donors are really interested in supporting investigative enterprise, long-form journalism, and we just talk about the journalism. We're not saying you are helping us pay for podcasts. We're saying you're helping pay for this long-form journalism that no one else in the state is doing. And we just see it as another thing that we are doing on another platform, not a product that has to be self-sustaining. So we're hugely advantaged. Our ad sales are a little piece of our podcast revenue, but they do not have to sustain the whole thing. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, and I want to get into the content itself in a second or the journalism itself, because I think that you guys have done literally industry leading work there. But when it comes to the breakdown, and I don't know how much you can share here of the revenue that's coming in from the station or from the podcast specifically, like, do you guys have any way of tracking like how many donors are coming from the podcast itself? versus uh, I'm positive you have ways to track this, but like how much revenue you're earning on the ads from the podcast versus the broadcast? Um, Yes and no. I mean, the the ad revenue from the podcast, you get your report every month. So it's like, yeah. It's like easy. It's 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 very small compared to our ads with the radio. It's like yeah. very small. But, you know, it's not nothing. Is it is it the same team selling it? No. We, we work with Stitcher for our podcast radio ads. We, work, we, we actually, a couple of years ago, signed up with an outside agency, which I, I pushed for, frankly. We had been with PRX previously. Before that, we were with another outside agency. But I was the one who sort of pushed for outside agency representation because I believe, as you know, Jeff, that when you have a product like podcasting that has a national reach that is a different kind of platform than a local radio station, you should be working with people who know how to work with that product. So that's why I work with a podcast marketing agency. And I think that people who have podcasts with a national reach should be working with a national sales team to sell their stuff. That I, I strongly believe it. I, I really strongly believe that. I'm 100% with you on that. We at Podglomerate work with an outside team to sell our stuff. And like we do this every day. 
That said, I do think that it's very easy for me to understand why an organization who sells ads for broadcast might think that it's the same thing. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you get the copy and you're like, this doesn't sound like a podcast. <laughs> or, like, or like, I don't think a Bear Brook listener wants to hear a Toyota of Nashua ad necessarily, but okay, cool. No, I mean, it's just it's just not a fit. It's not. It's also just it's not a good listener experience. Because ads are content. So you got to think about that too. <laughs> well, for years, I, I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you do. But whenever somebody would talk about a bad advertisement on a podcast, they would just call it a radio ad. And I haven't heard that very much lately because I think a lot of people have learned yeah. and are just doing better. But like that was kind of an insult for a long time. What we've learned so far is that public radio stations in some cases have a leg up because they just have run these membership drives for a long time and are also in the smart ones and the the ones that are forward thinking are, are kind of bringing in outside resources to help them to grow their shows and to sell ads and, and monetize the shows in ways in which they should be monetized. And so how are you thinking about actually producing these things? And like on its surface, like when you guys come up with a new idea to produce a podcast, like how do you decide if it's a podcast as opposed to like an episode of The Exchange or something? That's a really interesting question. So we have two regularly published shows right now, Civics 101 and Outside In. I really believe that if a station has an opportunity to have a regularly published show, they should stick with it. I mean, Outside In and Civics 101 are like eight years old and their listenership is still growing, which it's amazing. It's honestly, those are old ass shows. They are. They are old shows at this point, but we believe in them and we act like we believe in them, which I think is the reason why the listenership is still growing. But the regularly published show is your opportunity for steady revenue, both on the advertising side and on like the major donor side, on the asking for gifts side, on the membership side. Like if you have something that you're making all the time, you can always talk about it and you can always innovate in that space. We made a huge editorial shift in Civics 101 since I took over on the team and we've like grown our audience by something like 70% in the last two years. We always have something new to talk about if we're doing a series on Reconstruction or if we're responding to the Supreme Court. Like we can now go to the next donor event and talk about our Supreme Court stuff. We can talk about the latest thing that Outside In did. So I really believe that if a station has an opportunity to do a regularly published show which is within kind of the silo of the public radio, quote, area of interest, like an, an area that we know inspires curiosity. That's very much within the journalistic mission. In our case, it's civics and the environment. A station should do that. When it comes to the long form narrative journalism, that decision is purely editorial. Bearbrook was supposed to be a series of three four minute radio features. Oh, wow. I heard Jason in 2016 having this conversation with our news director at the time about this story about isotope science and about the bodies in the Bearbrook State Park. And I knew about the bodies because it was adjacent to a thing that I had written about a long time ago. And I just yelled over from my desk, that's a true crime podcast. And that was how Bear Brook became a true crime podcast. Like, it's purely editorial. Like, just like anything else at NHPR, we don't come up with a story to be a podcast. We, when we hear a story, find the right platform for it. 
I love that. And it shows for the listener, we won't spend tons of time, you know, diving into this, but NHPR is publishing series that are receiving millions of downloads because of the quality of the journalism and, and often making real life changes because of this journalism. But Rebecca, I wanted to chat because you were interviewed for an article for Current from Jenna Spinelli, where you identified something that I've kind of heard like rumblings of over the last few weeks from some of like the NPR stations and but you articulated it for the first time in a way that like really made me go like, oh, wow. What did I say? Well, ultimately, <laughs> you said that these smaller NPR stations have an opportunity right now to fill a void that these larger organizations like the Spotify's of the world are leaving when they are cutting back on their production, laying off some of their staff members. It was funny. I, I didn't quite realize this. I was rereading the article today. But on the same day that Spotify released 200 folks from their team, you all published the 13th step. And like, I was aware of both, but it, it wasn't until the second read that I realized it was the same day. So ultimately, like what you were saying in the article is that these local radio stations are already producing this kind of content and they have a really unique superpower to do so because they're funded by the broader organization and the umbrella of that organization and are not as reliant on the ad sales as some of these bigger organizations like a Spotify or a Pushkin or something. That's right. So can you break that down a little bit? Like what makes you guys uniquely qualified to do this? And like, why do the shows that you all make resonate with listeners to the extent that they do? Well, they're good. This is just true that our shows are good. There used to be a time when almost everything that was being published was like an event, right? Because it was all either good or it was new. You know, you couldn't wait. Like, remember when Gimlet used to make a show? We were like, oh, Gimlet has a new show. Every episode of Reply All was destination listening. Yeah. When Gimlet produced something new, like it didn't matter if I cared, I would listen. And I wouldn't always make it past the first episode, but I would always hit play. You'd always like wait for it, right? I mean, that really hasn't been a thing in quite a while. Right now we're at a point though where like, People have to really like hunt and discover great stuff, but there also just isn't a lot of great stuff being made. I'm sorry. I know that people might contradict me, but there are great things being made, but just not not to the extent where the great stuff is dominating the way that it used to, because there's so much mediocre stuff being made and there's so much money behind the mediocre stuff that's being made that that's mostly what you see, right? What we're seeing now with sort of things like the sale of cast and the collapse of the Spotify narrative and, you know, the consolidation and, you know, like last year it was like Sony, right? That like, spun off all of those little shops or closed all those little shops that were making narrative. I think we're going to be seeing more of that kind of thing. We have a couple of really good shops still. We've got Campside. We've got Pineapple that's owned by Odyssey. We've got Lemonada consistently making good stuff, but like not too many, right? Yeah. All of those shops still, though, are reliant on commercial revenue sources, except for that one show Lemonada just put out that had a grant funder, which is very exciting for me. But on that note, though, Lemonada has venture funding. Exactly. There, A lot of these organizations are dependent on other sources of capital. We are not. Yeah. We are not. There are very few that are not. And and, and it's funny, I, I would never put NHPR in that bucket, but you're completely right. So here's the thing. Every public radio station goes on the air during their fund drives and says, and I know this, I've said it myself 10 million times. The difference about public radio journalism is that your funding, your money gives us the time and space to do the kind of quality journalism that you rely on that you can't get anywhere else. 
That is why you listen to public radio. That's why you read stories on our website, because you know that you can rely on the news you get here. You know that it's going to be better than the news you get anywhere else. And that is why you're a public radio person. We should be using that same money that we are raising on the radio and that we are raising at other fundraisers to pay for podcasts, which are journalism, period. And we have this huge opportunity because we have all these incredible audio makers. Yeah, a bunch of them left to work for the podcast industry. But guess what? A bunch of them are also now available to hire back. We should be taking advantage of this opportunity to do what we do best, which is making audio journalism and using the funding that we are raising to make other things and thinking of this as a platform for journalism, period. And don't worry about whether or not it's going to be ad supported. You don't think about whether or not your political reporting is going to be self-sustaining. You don't think about whether or not your new Spanish language unit is going to be self. You don't think about anything else you make that way. So don't think about your podcast that way, period. That's it. I and I don't know the answer to this, but like I imagine that each public radio station has like a different war chest of budget. It's coming from different governments, places, contributors. Not governments. It's like three percent of every public radio station comes from a CPB grant. Like that is it. Well, I, I guess my my point here is more than anything like fake numbers. I'm making this up, but like station A may have a million dollars in the bank and station B may have ten million dollars in the bank. And Obviously, that's like a different starting point for each of them if they're going to embrace this strategy. It's interesting to think about because you cannot expect the same kind of output from each of these different organizations. Right. The quality at many of them are going to be consistent and some of them they won't be. But I, I guess one question that I have, and this is related to NHPR, and and I'm, I'm hoping you can frame this in a way that might be applicable to some of the smaller or larger organizations, but like what constitutes success? Yeah. Like when you put out Bear Brook, like what are you looking for? What makes it good? What makes it work? Okay. So the thing people need to understand is how few people made Bear Brook. <laughs> All right. So there's this idea and podcast people are going to hate me for saying this. They're going to hate me because the other thing that I see all the time, people are like, oh, it's horrible that all these non-audio people have gotten into the podcast space because they don't understand that it actually takes like 15 people to make a narrative podcast. <laughs> it sure can <laughs> take 15 people. But at a public radio station, it does not. Granted, Jason Moon is a bit of a savant. Uh, he did write all the music and score and mix the podcast himself, which not everybody does. But let's even take the 13th step, okay? Uh, Lauren Chuljan did, was the primary reporter on it. She worked with one contract editor. Jason did the scoring, mixing, production, and co-reporting. And then we brought together for edits a team of journalists from the newsroom and people around the organization, the podcast unit and newsroom to participate in group edits for feedback. That is our process to make our narrative shows. Tiny teams doing the work for a long period of time and then bringing in groups collaboratively from other teams for editing feedback. It is an incredible process that works really, really well for us. We also find that these tiny independent teams, the journalism is better because when you're not doing things with a huge group of people involved and you have a real process in place, a process of trust, a process where people feel heard, where you're getting like real listeners, giving you like real feedback as listeners, the journalism is sharper, it's better, it's not watered down. That has really, really worked for us. And success, sure, it's measured in audience size sometimes. For the 13th step, 
that was not our aim. Our aim was not audience size. Our aim was reaching the right people. Can you give like a 30 second explanation of the show? Sure. So the 13th step is about abuse, in particular sexual abuse within the alcohol and drug recovery industry through the lens of a particular person who ran a set of recovery centers in New Hampshire. So it's sort of the store's allegations against him and then sort of a broader look at what's called 13th stepping in the industry where very vulnerable people are preyed upon by people in power in recovery. So that that's sort of the broad strokes of it. But then the secondary story in it is that during the course of the reporting, there were actual physical vandalism attacks against Lauren Chuljan, the reporter on the story, our news director, uh, Lauren Chuljan's parents. Their houses were attacked and, and Lauren and her parents' cases multiple times with graffiti and rocks and bricks. So that's also like sort of a sub story within the story. What happens when you challenge power in this kind of situation? So success in that case, sure. Like we definitely want there to be an audience big reason why we hired you guys. But we also wanted the impact of the story, which is basically that we want people to understand, we want the right people to understand that this is happening and that it is common. This doesn't mean bringing in tons of ad dollars. This means making women, even if it's five women, (laughs) understand that they are not the only people that this has happened to. If that was the only outcome of this podcast, that would be a success story for this podcast. Yeah. I love that. And as someone who's who's familiar with the show and, and what went into it, it was a risky production in the sense of there were potentially real consequences for putting this out financially, legally, and otherwise. Yep. And I think that it's a testament to NHPR and like the ethics and of their journalism for for doing this, but from a very like callous way of saying it, you guys have to pay for this somehow. I have a question for you though, Jeff. Jeff, I have a question for you. Please. Please understand this because this is just true. This isn't just true about the 13th step. It's literally true about every piece of work we do. It's true about Civics 101 and Outside In. Do you think that a donor is going to be moved by the story? Oh, 100% yes. Of course they will. They'll be incredibly inspired because our other local journalism outlets able to do this kind of work because like they are facing this kind of challenge and like going up against it anyway. We just are at it. We are at it all the time. And then we are able to make the case that it is worth doing. I'll say the one differentiator that I think our station has, one of the reasons why we've been successful, is that we haven't taken this story and then said, oh, we need to make 50 podcasts now and try to replicate this 50 times and then get 50 times the donors and 50 times. No, we are staying in our lane, which is telling stories that matter at a scale we can manage and making sure that we are trying to reach the people that are important for us to reach. And I think that is the perfect place for us to end. Rebecca, where can our listeners find you? I'm all over social media at Reb Lavoy. And please listen to every podcast that NHPR makes. I'd really appreciate it. I, I can vouch. I think you'll enjoy. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks again to Rebecca Lavoy for joining me on this episode of Podcast Perspectives. Anyone listening to this should check out 13th Step and both seasons of Bear Brook, along with Civics 101 and Outside In from NHPR. Uh, Really, anything that they publish is great, broadcast and podcast. 
Thank you to our production team, Chris Boniello, Jordan Aaron, and Henry Lavoie, as well as Tom Grillo for creating the art for this episode. The music that you hear in this episode comes from Epidemic Sound. I also want to thank our marketing team, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Matt Keeley, Annabella Pena, and a special thank you to Dan Christo. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you next week.